I invite you to take your Bible with me today and open to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 and back to a portion of Scripture that we have spent the last two Sundays studying and reading. We're going to look at it again today. This series of messages I've entitled Simply Jesus. It's what we have to focus on as we go through this year. Uh, Just to be reminded in the midst of all the confusion and all the chaos that what really matters is Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is speaking. It's the Sermon on the Mount. He's closing the sermon, bringing it to its conclusion. And he says in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in these next few minutes, those that are here physically on the campus and those that are watching us by way of live stream from their own homes, I pray, Lord God, that you will open our hearts to hear the truth. Today's message has been a burden on my heart all week long. It's been a heavy burden to carry all week long. But Lord, I cannot skip over this truth. I cannot simply pass it by This is what the Bible says, and I must proclaim what your word says. And I pray, Lord God, today that you will help us to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us on this day. In your name I pray, amen. Vance Havner is a name that maybe some of you will recognize. The younger generation probably won't. He died in the middle 1980s, so he's been gone 30 or 40 years. Uh, I enjoyed hearing him preach. I never heard him preach in person. I wish I had. I wish I'd gone to hear him in person. But I've heard him a number of times by way of uh, audio recordings or video recordings. You can Google his name, and you can listen to him on the Internet. You will love to hear him. He has that beautiful southern drawl that comes from his southern upbringing, But what I liked about Vance Havner was that he had a way with words that I wish I was able to have. He has had a unique way of being able to spin a sentence and say the things that you'd like to be able to say in the way you'd want to say them. And his sermons would oftentimes stab your heart and you weren't even realizing that it was happening, that you were getting, uh, you were being convicted and you didn't even realize it by the way he said it. He had a unique way of saying things. Well, he was preaching in a country church, and after the sermon where he had preached about hell, there was a young man and a farmer that challenged him about his sermon on hell. And the man said to the pastor, he said, Pastor Havner, I don't think you should preach any more fire and brimstone. You should preach about the meek and mild Jesus. Vance Havner replied to them, but he's the one who gave me the information about hell in the first place. And the way he was able to respond with that southern charm, you can almost hear the conviction coming back to this farmer and his son as they say, we'd like to hear more about the meek and mild Jesus. We don't want to hear about hell. You know, a lot of people don't want to hear about hell. They don't want to hear about what happens at the end of our journey if we don't know Jesus Christ. And yet, Jesus spoke frequently about hell and about judgment. It's worth noting that The biblical information that we have about hell, much of it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. 
And if Jesus spoke it, it's worth our attention. It's worth us listening to because he always speaks the truth. We can't ignore something that's in the Bible just because it's unpleasant, believe me, this entire week preparing this message today. It hasn't been pleasant, but it's been the reality of what I know the Bible teaches and what all of us desperately need to hear. On one occasion, there were some sailors aboard a ship, and they asked the chaplain this question, do you believe in hell? And the chaplain responded, well, I certainly do. Why do you ask? And these sailors said, well, if there is a hell and you don't believe in it, then we don't want you for our chaplain. But if there is no hell, then we don't need a chaplain. And that's the reality. If there is no hell, there is no need for the gospel. If there is no hell, there is no need for the salvation of Jesus Christ that comes to us by way of the gospel. But the fact of the matter is there is a hell. Even in the passage that we read here a few moments ago, those that go through the broad way, through the wide gate onto the broad way, find themselves at the end of life at a place of destruction. That's what it says, a place of destruction. And so before we consider this subject of hell and what the Bible has to say about it, I want to remind you that in this passage we've read today, Jesus speaks about two gates, he speaks about two pathways, and he speaks about two destinations. And I gave you a little statement. Hopefully you've written it down, or at least you've tried to remember it. And the statement goes like this. Every person in life, every person in life goes through a gate leading to a pathway that ends at a final destination. Every person in life goes through a gate leading to a pathway that ends at a final destination. When you hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 in a very profound way, Jesus likens our eternal destiny to choosing the right gate to enter, which leads to the right road to travel that ends in the right place for eternity, or to choose the wrong gate that leads to the wrong road that leads to the wrong place for all of eternity. The fact of the matter is, at the end of life, there are only two choices of where you will spend eternity either in a place of, that Jesus calls here life or a place that Jesus calls destruction, destruction. And we're going to finish or spend most of our time, I should say, thinking about that aspect, the destruction. The Greek word is apelia. It, in the lexicon, is defined this way. It refers to the state after death wherein exclusion from salvation is a realized fact, wherein man instead of becoming what he might have been, is lost and ruined. Destruction or the second death, which is eternal exclusion from Christ's kingdom. In other words, the ultimate consequence in eternity for rejecting Jesus Christ, going through the, going through the wide gate that leads to the broad way, the ultimate conclusion of that is that you are separated from God forever in a place called hell. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus began these two verses with the word enter. It's an imperative. 
In other words, you can just drift along. You don't have to do anything to go through the wide gate onto the broad way. It may be be a, a religious way for you or an irreligious way for you. You can just drift along through the wide gate onto the broad way and end up in hell. But if you're going to go to heaven, you've got to stop and recognize that your answer is in the person of Jesus Christ. And you've got to come to Jesus and you've got to put your faith in him you got to put your faith in the one who can save you from your sins. Now, everybody likes to talk about heaven. I like to talk about heaven. As a matter of fact, over the past weeks, I've talked a lot about heaven. We've had a lot of families that have been bereaved. We have two more families this week that are laying to rest their loved ones, and we have one today who is laying to rest a loved one. I've talked a lot about heaven, and I love to talk about heaven the street of gold, the walls of jasper, the gates of pearl. Jesus is the light of the city. There's no need for the sun or the moon or the stars. You talk about all of the different stones that the revelation reveals to us are there in that city, and you think about the light of Christ, this perfect light of Christ reflecting off all of those stones that represent different colors, and you begin to realize that heaven is this incredibly beautiful, colorful place where our loved ones are who have trusted Jesus Christ. There is no sickness there, and there is no sin there. There is no sorrow. There is no suffering. There, are, there is no more su- separation in that place. There's no need for funeral homes and hospitals and pharmacies and all the things that we've become accustomed to in living in a sin-cursed world. Because in that place, it's a place of perfect rest, perfect joy, perfect worship. It's a place of perfect fellowship. It's a place where we serve the Lord and we honor the Lord and we worship him for the rest of eternity. I love to talk about, I love to talk about heaven. I often say that when you think about heaven, Jesus said he went to prepare a place for, for us in heaven. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6, he went to prepare a place. I often say that if you've ever been to the Greenbrier, it looks like a shack compared to what heaven looks like. And more importantly than what it looks like is who is there. Jesus Christ is what makes heaven heaven, not just the beauty and the majesty of the place. And that's where our loved ones who knew Christ are. I like to talk about, I like to talk about heaven. I don't like to talk about hell. But I want you to listen to what the Bible has to say about it and how it describes it. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, it says it's a place of suffering in eternal fire. In Matthew 3.12, it says it's a place of unquenchable fire. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says it's a place of shame and everlasting contempt. In Mark 9.44-49, it says it's a place where the fire is not quenched. In Luke chapter 16, verses 23 and 24, it says it's a place of torment and fire. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it says it's a place of everlasting destruction. In Revelation 14, 10, and 11, it says it's a place where the smoke of torment rises forever and ever. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it says it's a place where the wicked are tormented day and night forever and forever. And that's just a sampling of what the Bible has to say about the place called hell. Or what Jesus says is at the end of this wide gate that leads to the broad way that's called destruction. What's at the end is a place called hell, a place of separation from God where we don't enter into his kingdom and we're cut off from God forever and ever. All of these descriptions 
or about a divine judgment that's eternal and unrelenting. It's eternal and it's unrelenting. Just talking about these things causes a tremendous amount of stress just hearing them, doesn't it? So let me lighten the mood for just a moment. A politician, hear the word? A politician woke up after an operation and found the curtains in his hospital room drawn. He asked the nurses, why are the curtains closed? Is it nighttime already? The nurse replied, no, there's a fire across the street and we didn't want you to wake up and think the operation was unsuccessful. (laughs) And sadly, there'll be plenty of politicians in that place. There's nothing wrong with laughing at a funny story like that, but there is no sense laughing at the reality of hell. It is no laughing matter when you're talking about it in its reality. Consider some of the words that are used to describe in Scripture this place called hell. The words smoke or fire, burning, torment, the bottomless pit, the everlasting prison, wrath, Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire, eternal fire, the second death, damnation, furnace of fire, blackness and darkness, burning sulfur. It's hard to even read the words. And for those of you who think that that kind of punishment's only temporary, you just go for a little while and then you're all burned up and it's all gone and it's all over. That's not what Matthew 25 verse 46 says. Matthew 25, 46, it says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Whatever eternal life means in this text, it also applies to everlasting punishment because they use the exact same Greek word for eternal and everlasting. In other words, if the duration of life that's promised is eternal, then the duration of punishment is also eternal. You never escape it. Once you find yourself in that place, you are there forever, never to be released from that place. In purgatory, purgatory isn't mentioned in the Bible. That's a Catholic tradition. It has nothing to do with the Bible. You don't have an intermediate state where you might burn off a little bit of your sin until you can finally make it into heaven. You're either on the narrow road or you're on the broad way, but you're not going to end up somewhere in between the two. You end up either in life that's life everlasting or you end up in destruction, which is eternal death, but you don't have some middle ground where you burn off some time until you finally make it into the place of life. It doesn't work that way. That's a tradition. That's Catholic theology. That's not biblical theology. There is no middle ground. Somebody say, well, how in the world could a God of love allow a person to suffer an unending misery? Well, I like what one person said. He said, the fact that God is love makes hell necessary. He put it this way, hell is not compatible with God's love. It is the direct consequence of God's love. This fact, he goes on to say, stresses that the very God who loves us is the one who respects our decisions. He loves us, but he does, not force us to, he does not force his love on us. To force love is to commit assault. He allows us to decide. He loves us. He encourages us. Our response, he woos us. He, he, he woos us to himself. He pursues us. He urges us, but he does not force us. 
because he respects us. How does the phrase that, or the verses that we've read here a few minutes ago, how does it begin? Enter, 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 but he will not force you to enter. You have to make that choice for yourself. As C.S. Lewis put it one time, sin is the human being saying to God, go away and leave me alone. Hell is God finally saying, you may have your wish. And those who reject Jesus Christ find themselves in that horrible, awful place. The reality is that people go to hell for one simple reason. Your loved ones are going to hell for one simple reason. You may be going to hell for one simple reason. They haven't entered through the narrow gate by believing in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And that's the only reason you have yet to believe in Jesus for eternal life. That's what John 3.18 says. We love to quote John 3.16. We don't read much past it. Listen to what it says. He who believes in him is not condemned but he who, believe, who, he who does not believe is condemned already. And here's, the, here's the, the reason. Why is he condemned already? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why is he condemned? Why are you condemned today? Why, if you died today, would you be separated from God forever? It's because you have failed to believe in Jesus for eternal life. There is no other way. You enter through the narrow gate onto the difficult road that ends in life, or you go through, whether intentionally or not, the wide gate that leads to the broad way that ends in destruction. There is no in-between. You have to make that choice, and you have to make that decision. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus, speaking to those in the first century, speaking to us, 21 centuries later, is speaking to us and telling us, listen, don't miss it. Don't pass it by. I'm not going to force it on you, but it's available. You've got to trust me. You've got to put your faith in me. You've got to believe in me. That's the only way to eternal life. Any other way you think is a way ends up with destruction exclusion from the kingdom of God, to be turned into hell forever. And that's what the Bible teaches. It's not pleasant, but it's real. And Jesus is the one who spoke about it. I want you to turn with me for a few moments over to Luke chapter 16. And I want to read to you a passage of scripture that describes two men who died and the two consequences that came after death. You remember there's two gates there's two pathways, and there's two destinations. And these two men illustrate for us the two gates, the two pathways, and the two destinations. Just listen carefully to what he says. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. In other words, outward success says nothing about your spiritual condition. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, by the way, four times he uses the word torments. 
And being in torments in Hades, that's the place of the departed dead, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who would pass from here to you cannot, that is to bring him water because he was thirsty, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you before, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. Wow. You know, some people say this is a parable. We're not supposed to take it as something except it's, it's symbolic. Well, there's three things I'd remind you about just quickly. If this is a parable, it, it's not called a parable. If it's a parable, it's the only parable where... Uh, a name is used for the person in the parable. And even if it is a parable, it's clear that Jesus is telling us something important about our eternal destinies. Whether we die with Christ or we die without Christ, and I'm sort of with R.C. Sproul on this one. If it is symbolic, it's symbolic because the reality is too awful for words. It's not better than this, it's worse. And therefore he told it in a symbolic way. The fact of the matter is this story tells us three very important truths that you simply do not want to miss. And the first is this, there is life after death. You don't cease to exist when your body dies. Your soul leaves your body, but that soul lives on somewhere forever. It lives on somewhere forever, either in heaven or in hell. There are only two places. But when you die, that's not the end. Did you notice in verse 22? So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels. Not his body, his soul. And then it says the rich man also died and was buried. His body was buried, but then you hear him speaking from hell. There is life after death. If you think death is the end, you're terribly mistaken. For a period of time, we had a lady who came with her husband. She was a Seventh-day Adventist. She came with her husband, and she would sit here. He believed what we teach from the Scripture, but she believed differently than we believe. And she, left, she believed in soul sleep, and she didn't believe in the orthodox view of hell. And periodically, when I'd say something about some of these matters, she would send me materials just to remind me how wrong I was on these matters. He passed away, and she left. But I tell you, there is, at the moment of death, life that follows your soul continues to live. There's a story that's told about a teenage boy who was raised in an ungodly family and he was critically ill. He knew he was going to die and he was afraid about being put in the ground, being put in a grave and then having all the dirt to cover him up. He didn't want to be shut away from the light. So he made his dad make a solemn promise to him. He said, dad, when I die, I want you to put a window on my grave to let the sunlight in. 
Sadly, this dad nor this son understood about death and what happens at death. And so this dad fulfilled that promise. He actually built a shaft with a window on top going down to the coffin so that the sun would shine on his dead son's body. He didn't understand that the body has no sensation when it's dead, but the soul lives on forever. I'm so thankful when I can stand beside a family and I can look at them and I can say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That your family is in a place of eternal bliss. Your family member is in a place of eternal bliss in the presence of the Almighty God, in the presence of the one who made it possible, who has the nail prints in his hands and in his feet. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8 say. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, so then we will be at home with the Lord. Do you get it? Everybody, when they die, lives forever. You're going to live forever somewhere. You're going to live forever somewhere, my friend. Maybe nobody else has told you that. Maybe you thought everybody got to get out of this life and it was all going to be good from now on. But there's only two places to go. And the determining factor of where you go when you die is what you do with Jesus. There is no middle point. Everybody lives after they die. I like to describe it this way. The Bible describes us as being a tripart being. We're a body, we're a soul, and we're a spirit. A body is others conscious. It's our senses. It's how we interact with people in the world around us. The soul is self-conscious. It's our mind. It's our will. It's our emotions. And our spirit is God-conscious. It's dead until it's made alive by faith in Jesus Christ. But we have that God-consciousness in our lives. And at death, our soul and our spirit leave our body. Like moving out of a house, they move out. But they don't stop existing. Your body goes back into the ground like a seed that's planted in the ground. But you live on forever in heaven or in hell. There is life after death. But I'd say secondly, your eternal destiny, your destiny is final in eternity. Your destiny is final in eternity. There are no reversals. There are no second chances. There is no purgatory. When you find yourself in eternity in heaven, that's an eternal state that you are in forever. And when you find yourself in hell, that's an eternal state that you find yourself in forever. In this eternal place, this rich man could see, he could hear, he could feel, he could recognize, he could remember, he could speak, he could reflect, he could plead, he could suffer, he could think ahead. But the one thing he couldn't do, he couldn't escape the place where he was confined. Isn't that what he says? Look back at the text. Notice what he says, verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you, that is to bring him water because his tongue is parched in the flame, they can't come to you, nor can those from there pass to us. We live forever. Hell is not only real and terrible, it's final. 
say, well, I'm just going to be there and have a great party. We're going to have all my friends there. We're going to live it up. You don't know the real meaning of what it means to suffer in hell then. I had a dear friend. His name was Harold Leake. I had both of his children in my youth group when I was a youth pastor. His son and his daughter in my youth group. He had more than two children. But I had his son and his daughter in my youth group when I was a youth pastor. He was an evangelist. He, he was a country evangelist. By the way, you don't have to be an educated evangelist. In, well, he was educated. But you don't have to be an educated evangelist to be anointed by God. Do you know that? Some of the best preaching I've ever heard have been by people that didn't have a seminary degree, but they'd spent the time in the Word, studying the Word, and learned it for themselves, what God has to say. They rightly divided the Word of truth. You can do that too, by the way. You don't have to have a seminary degree to do that. He rightly divided the word of truth. And you have to just think with me for a moment. He had a country flair to him. You have to hear that country twang in his song. And whenever uh, he would sing, he would always play his guitar. If I could play a guitar, I'd play it for you. He'd always play his guitar. And he had that little bit of a country twang whenever he sang. Well, Harold Leake wrote lots of poems. I helped him to gather them all and put them in a book. And we printed that book. One of those songs is a, a song that I can hear in the back of my mind to this very day. It's called, Oh, How Awful Hell Must Be. I'm not going to read you the whole song, but as you listen to it, listen to that country twang as he's picking his guitar and he's singing this song, getting ready to preach a message. Oh, how awful hell must be. Turn away Jesus and soon you will see. With fire to torment you and memories to haunt, you'll never be receiving the things that you want. Oh, how awful hell must be. After 10,000 years of suffering and thirst, no less time awaits you than there was at the first. Oh, how awful hell must be. How terrible are the sounds from that awful place, forsaken of God, forsaken of his mercy and grace, with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, screaming and crying and never relief. Oh, how awful hell must be. There is life after death. And your destiny is final in eternity. You don't get a second chance. You don't get a do-over. I stand sometimes on the, not in the past 10 years or so, I'd stand on the first tee of a golf course occasionally with my friends, and we hadn't warmed up. We just stood up and hit the golf ball, and it wouldn't go where it was supposed to go. You have that problem? And we'd have a, what? A mulligan. Now, you can't do that in a tournament, but you can do that with your buddies. We, we had a mulligan. There are no mulligans. The decision you make about Jesus today is a decision that'll go with you for eternity. And once you die, that decision is sealed forever. There is no changing it. Wide is the gate that leads to the broad way that ends in destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to the difficult way that leads to life. And you have to make that choice of whether you're going to believe on Jesus or not. And to reject Jesus is to sentence yourself to an eternal hell forever. The third thing from this I want you to see. There's life after death. Your destiny is final in eternity. But thirdly, Scripture is the only adequate basis for faith. 
Scripture is the only adequate basis for faith. This man in hell says, listen, Abraham, if you'll just send somebody back from the dead, they'll be able to convince my five brothers that they won't come to this awful, terrible, tormenting place if you'll just send somebody back from the dead. And what does Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then he finishes out in verse 31. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded. They'll one rise from the dead. Give them a show. They still won't believe. You know why? Because the Bible is the imperishable seed that the Holy Spirit uses to bring life to you and me. As a matter of fact, what does Romans 10, 17 say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the by the word of God. You say, I want to replace the preaching of the word of God. We'd like to have a show atmosphere on the platform. We could draw a crowd. Yeah, but you'd send them all to an eternal hell in the process. It's the word of God that gets implanted in a person's heart that the Holy Spirit uses to bring life. That's what 1 Peter 1.23 says. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. The imperishable seed has to be sown. I hope I'm sowing that clearly today. I know some of you will go away. Some of you watching will say, he's a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Then you haven't listened much to this preacher. I don't preach on hell every Sunday, but I'm desperately trying to keep your soul out of an eternal hell telling you the truth that a lot of other Christians and apparently a lot of other churches don't want to talk about. If there is no hell, there is no need for the gospel. There is no need for a preacher. There is no need for the gathering of the church. There is no need for reading your Bible. There is no need for all of these spiritual things that we do of emphasis. There is no need. But if there is a hell, then what we're talking about is absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. I was reading this week about a man who died of cancer in his 40s. He was a very successful and quite a prosperous man, apparently. And his wife was telling people about his last days and some of the reading materials that were there by his bed. She said that he had Gentleman's Quarterly, GQ magazine. She talked about the fine clothes that he had in his closet. There was a catalog of Porsches And she talked about the sports cars that he had in his garage. Then the other magazines she talked through, we don't need to walk through all of those, just talking about his success and his prosperity. But then she said, as he got closer and closer to death, she noticed that his reading material got smaller and smaller and smaller until finally, in the last days, all that was left on the table was a Bible. You know, for all of those of you that think everything else is important other than the Bible or the preaching of the Bible or the teaching of the Bible, when it comes to your last breath, I'm going to tell you what you're going to want more than anything else. You're going to want the Bible. Because the Bible is the imperishable word of God that brings life to the lifeless and brings hope in the midst of our deepest sorrow and deepest grief. The word of God is living. It's abiding The Word of God changes people's lives. If this church ever stops focusing, centering on the preaching of the Word of God, you should walk away. 
Find you a church that centers on something else. There are plenty of them out there. Ceremonies and rituals, goes through the motions. I'm talking about the church that opens the Bible and explains what it says and applies it to your life and doesn't hold back even on the tough subjects. Can I tell you a thousand times this week, I wish I could have chosen a different subject than this one. But somebody's soul hangs in the balance. And you desperately need to hear the truth. There was a man by the name of Mr. Allen. He stood in a church meeting to give a testimony about his life. I'm going to read it to you. That testimony was recorded and then it was transcribed. And I'm going to read you his testimony. Listen to it. I married the girl of my dreams. We were so in love, so happy. But she was a Christian. These are his words. I was an infidel. I watched her go to church Sunday after Sunday. I looked at her life, listened to her prayers. I saw her Bible stained with tears. I was an infidel. I laughed at her as she walked off to church, made fun of her as she prayed. I thought she was foolish for reading the Word of God, and after a while, God gave us a baby, a precious little girl. Oh, how we loved her. When she was an infant, her mother carried her to Sunday school every Sunday. When she was a beginner, four, five, six, every Sunday she was at church, every Sunday night back to the church Sunday uh, night service, every Wednesday night to midweek prayer service. She never missed when she was six to church with her mother, seven to church with mother, eight, nine, ten, eleven to church with her mother. And when she got to be about 12, I began talking with her, I began taking her, excuse me, to places that were less spiritual. He uses another term. She had a good time. Finally, she began to tell her mother, Mother, I don't want to go to church today. I'm too sleepy. Daddy, I st Daddy and I stayed out late last night. I would laugh under my breath and say, She's not going to follow the old-time religion of her mother. I'm so happy about that. Her mother would plead and beg, Honey, please go with Mother. Please go with Mother. But I'd say, Honey, you stay home if you want to. So she would say no to her mother. On Sunday nights, I would take her out, and we would have a big time painting the town red while Mother was at church crying her eyes out because her daughter had gone into sin. Finally, our daughter quit going to church. She never went with her mother again. She was a beautiful girl, 15, 16 years of age. We loved her dearly. Her mother was a Christian. I was an infidel. She was following in Daddy's footsteps, but one night, she was out with a gang of kids in a vehicle. They went swimming, and she caught a cold, and in a while it went into pneumonia. We didn't have all the cures we have now. So before long, she was at the point of death. The doctor called me in and said, Mr. Allen, your girl is dying. I went and looked at my little girl, still just a teenager. Her mother had served Jesus. I was an infidel. I looked at her, and my daughter said to me, Daddy, I'm dying, am I not? I replied, yes, honey, you're going to die. Then I began to weep. Her mother was crying, but there was not a tear in our little girl's eye. She said, Daddy, I want you to know one thing. All my life, mother's gone one way, and you've gone the other way. Now, Daddy, since I'm dying, I've got to know the answer. I've got to know. I love you, Daddy. I love you, and I trust you, and believe what you say. Daddy, while I'm dying, should I die mommy's way or your way? Should I die mommy's way or your way? 
I began to cry. Then I threw my body on hers and said, Honey, choose mother's way. Choose mother's way quickly, honey. Choose mommy's way. Before I'd hardly said it, she'd gone off into eternity. He finished by saying, I'll never know until I face God whether she chose mommy's way or daddy's way. There's only two ways. By the way, you can go all the way back to Genesis. There's always been two old-time religions. There's always been a religion of works and religiosity and ceremony and a religion of faith. There's only two ways. There's the narrow gate that leads to a difficult path that ends in life. And there's a wide gate that leads to a broad, there's a wide gate that leads to a broad pathway that ends in destruction. But that destruction doesn't mean you cease to exist. It means you're paying the penalty. You have a wasted life and a wasted eternity. Why? Because you didn't enter. It's there. The gate is there. You have to look. You might miss it. There's a lot of confusion in our churches today, a lot of confusion amongst the way people that name Christ talk about, about salvation. Maybe it's confusing to you, but you got to look because you got to enter there. Jesus is the only way. Matthew 7, 13, 14, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Hell is no joke. It's not a slang word to be used by your favorite television stars or even by you. Hell is no joke, and it's not the machination of wild-eyed preachers too uneducated to understand the Bible who make up stories to control people's lives. It's the truth that is declared by Jesus himself at the end of the Broadway is destruction. Since there's only two ways, two gates and two ways and two destinations, We've got to enter that gate, that narrow gate, and we've got to do it now. So I've been putting it off. I've been holding off. You understand the past 11 months, people have been going into eternity while we've been hiding out. Going into eternity while we've been hiding out. Those people can't come back for a redo. 500,000 of them almost can't come back, or 400,000, excuse me, can't come back for a redo. We must share the message of the gospel. You say, preacher, why every Sunday are you pushing me to give out this card? Because I'm trying to help you turn inside out to start recognizing that every person who waits on your table, every person that serves you at your house, every person that comes by way of your office and by way of your plant, people that you interact with on a daily basis, I'm trying to get you to recognize they have an eternal soul. And they've got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, you sound awful serious about this. I can't get any more serious.
people's eternal destiny is dependent upon you and me bringing the gospel to them. Please, take these cards. This is not the ending point. This is just the beginning point to turn us inside out as a congregation. We're not going to save America. That's not our task. Our task is to bring the saving message of the gospel to America. That's our task. Let everybody else work at saving America. Our task is to bring people the truth that there's only two gates and two pathways and two destinations, and they have got to put their faith in Jesus or they'll be lost forever.